England was never really a unified country. In the year 600, it had a variety of languages, religions, and inhabitant origins. The southeast was Germanic, the north and west were Britonic, Gaelic, and Pictish. The northeast was Norse. When the Normans invaded, England became one country and one of the oldest nation-states in the world. 600 years later, the regional divide still existed. In fact, genetics show that they still exist to this day. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. The North, for example, remained loyal to the Catholics and were ready to stubbornly, if only passively, resist Elizabeth's changes. They resented the new gentry who had been enriched by the dissolution of the monasteries, which had once been the center of community life and charity, and who now threatened their way of life. England had also developed a distinct culture from continental Europe. Its gentry remained attached to the countryside. People who became wealthy moved to rural areas instead of to cities. They passed their grand estates to their oldest sons so that the estates would pass from generation to generation intact. Younger sons worked in trades and law and often ended up richer than the ones who had inherited their wealth. These younger sons built up their own estates and the cycle continued. By Elizabeth's time, England also had the first reformed government in Europe and a thriving Renaissance culture. Elizabeth had also inherited a poor, battered country with a decayed nobility, few good soldiers and sailors, a divided people, and economic problems. The country had no real allies, but it had enemies which were all too real. And in addition to what we've already discussed, Spain's New World imports were starting to drive inflation, and the crown's already limited wealth was worth less than ever. The Irish were still hostile after Henry's attempt to make Ireland more English, and the navy that he had built had decayed, and just 20 miles across the ocean, Europe was becoming more and more unstable as Reformation and Counter-Reformation forces clashed. So... Elizabeth had a very precarious situation to navigate, and the fact that she did so successfully has made her one of the most beloved monarchs in English history. There's a good argument to be made that the reason Elizabeth didn't marry anyone was because there was no peaceful way that she could even do that. If she had married an Englishman, it would fuel factional and sectarian fighting in her own court and country, but if she married someone from the continent, she would pull England into the sectarian conflict that was going on there. England could afford neither type of conflict, so Elizabeth took the opposite approach from her father, and instead of trying to produce an heir, she worked to stabilize the country enough to survive without an obvious successor. Last episode, we discussed how the various problems and divisions facing England came about. This week, we'll discuss how those problems were solved and what that meant for the future of the English-speaking world. The most obvious issue was religious balance. Elizabeth was a Protestant. The first thing she did was repeal Mary's Catholic legislation and declare herself Supreme Governor of the English Church. A year later, she also passed the Elizabethan Settlement, which created the form of the Anglican Church. She was the head of the church, and it maintained a 
balance of Catholic traditions with a moderately reformed doctrine. This really kept what the average English person would have liked to see in a church, and predictably she was excommunicated by the Pope, but by this point in time that wasn't actually a huge deal. What was a problem was that while Elizabeth tried to steer the most moderate path possible, she was surrounded by mounting radicalism on both sides. On the Protestant side, Mary's exiles had returned from Europe, deeply Calvinist, and that meant that they were not only opposing the power of Rome, but of any religious clergy or hierarchy, and indeed, in extreme cases, of any secular hierarchy too. They were her most loyal subjects, but at their most extreme, they weren't fully sold on the concept of a monarchy. They wanted a theocratic democracy where neither Elizabeth nor her bishops had any influence on the church. They were also very eager to give military support to the Protestants in Europe, and they wanted retaliation against the Catholics for what happened during Mary's reign. On the Catholic side, the Jesuits had started to lead the Counter-Reformation, which was gaining steam in Europe. The Jesuits wanted to stamp out Protestantism every bit as much as the Puritans wanted to expel any vestige of Catholicism from society. There weren't huge numbers of Jesuits in England, but there were some, and they were smart, and they were dedicated. The average Englishman just wanted to go to their own church in their own community, get baptized, get married, learn the fundamentals of faith and morality, and live the life that the English had become accustomed to. This went for both Anglicans and Catholics. Elizabeth was happy to leave the people alone for the most part, especially by the standards of the day. She coupled this tolerance with her firm intention to lead the English church to prevent England from becoming swallowed up by the mounting wave of sectarian conflict, and her keeping control of the church was vital if England was to survive the turmoil. Like I said, the Puritans were Elizabeth's most loyal subjects, but they were also her most dangerous, because if they got enough political power, they could pull England into a civil war. After the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, they might also pull England into war on the continent, which England wasn't prepared for. They also challenged her authority, especially on church matters, but also in secular government. They dominated the towns of Southeast England. Like I said, they were democratic in theory and the way they organized themselves, but they were also intensely intolerant of anyone whose views differed from their own. They planned to transform the Anglican church from within, so Elizabeth had to try to keep them from organizing cells within the Anglican church. The Jesuits mainly came from, or at least were supported from, abroad. Whereas the Puritans were gradually building, organizing, and spreading on sort of a grassroots level, the Jesuits took a more flamboyant approach that was characterized by personal danger, assassination, plots, and intrigue. This was the result of necessity. Puritans had only to pull a Protestant country toward their views, but Jesuits, if they were to succeed, had to change the people in charge. Second in line for the throne was Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a dedicated Catholic. And if the Jesuits could eliminate Elizabeth, then a Catholic England was a definite possibility. Speaking of Mary, Queen of Scots, this is a good time to check in with England's neighbor to the north for a couple of minutes. Scotland had been going through its own Protestant revolution. Henry's son Edward was supposed to marry Mary Stuart, 
or Mary, Queen of Scots, but he died too young to do so. Mary was known for being a lively and kind person and was very well liked early in her reign. She was, of course, a dedicated Catholic, and when Edward died, she married the King of France. He died of an ear infection, and when he did, she married a cousin of hers and had a son named James. Her husband killed her secretary while she watched while she was pregnant, and then another man killed her husband, and she then married him. Everyone was shocked by this behavior. To make matters worse, her husband was divorced, so Catholics considered her marriage unlawful. And she was Catholic in an increasingly Calvinist Scotland. Whereas England's Reformation had been calculated and political, Scotland had experienced the kind of dramatic, bloody clashes that continental Europe saw. So much so that today there's only one remaining medieval cathedral in Scotland, in Glasgow, and it's riddled with bullet holes. So... When Mary's son was a year old, she fled Scotland and left him to be raised by the Presbyterians there. As a descendant of Henry VII, she was next in line for the English throne if Elizabeth died. That made her a problem. If the Catholics could kill Elizabeth, they'd have a Catholic queen. England was the only reformed country in Europe at the time, so this would cripple Protestantism in general. It wasn't long before there was an uprising against Elizabeth, but it failed. Elizabeth's response actually managed to strengthen the trust between the queen and her Catholic subjects because it was very measured by the standards of the day. She did put Mary in the tower, and then there was an attempt to break Mary out of the tower. While Elizabeth was reluctant to kill her cousin, by 1584 there was evidence that Mary was actually participating in these conspiracies, and so there was a formal trial and Mary was executed. The internal Catholic threat was finished. There were laws against Catholics forbidding them from practicing law or medicine and not allowing them to live in London. There weren't large-scale executions, though, so it was better to be a minority sect in England than it was in most European countries. There was no chance of England turning Catholic for the foreseeable future, though. Externally, Elizabeth had to maintain the English peace. She didn't have the money to fight a war, and getting involved in sectarian war would be devastating to England anyway. Her Secretary of State was one of Mary's exiles and wanted her to give the Protestant cause unlimited aid. Another of her advisors, though, Lord Cecil, wanted to pursue friendship with Spain, feeling that it was a Tudor tradition and that anything else would inflame Puritan extremists internally. Elizabeth agreed with the latter and tried to build an alliance with France. This was derailed when the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre led to the deaths of between five and 30,000 French Protestants or Huguenots. Elizabeth recalled her ambassador and started to secretly fund the Huguenots. She also blockaded Scottish ports to prevent the French-Scottish alliance from re-emerging, and in the process helped solidify a Protestant Scotland at the Treaty of Leith. She pursued similar Cold War tactics in the Netherlands and sanctioned privateers to plunder Spanish vessels in an undeclared war at sea in the Caribbean. She also helped to fund the Dutch Protestant rebels. She was working to weaken Spain, knowing that Spain was likely to try to invade England. 
She even ended up sending an army to Holland after attack seemed imminent. And of course, as tensions escalated, her navy of privateers sank the Spanish Armada. They had smaller ships, slower ships, weaker ships, but they had one major tactical advantage, and that was the broadside cannon. Whereas the Spanish relied on their ability to board ships and take them in hand-to-hand combat, English boats could simply come up beside a ship, shoot a cannonball at it, and either cripple or sink it. That's exactly what they did, and after a year and a half of anticipating the attack, the battle with the Armada was over almost as soon as it began. This was a crowning moment of Elizabeth's reign, and it was an event inexorably linked with the history of America. This was the first great generation of English sailors. They had learned seamanship running slaves on the West African coast and as privateers or pirates in the West Indies. They built the Navy and they really set the standard for English seamanship. Actual colonization would have to wait, though. Privateering was the name of the game in Elizabeth's day, and the massacre of a Huguenot settlement in Florida by the Spanish meant that colonization had to be done very, very carefully. But by the end of Elizabeth's reign, we see the society that would produce English colonies in the New World. The same divisions which had emerged during Henry's reign still existed, but they no longer threatened the existence of England. The vast majority of English society had come to a new equilibrium. The Elizabethan settlement worked for most people. In fact, by the end of Elizabeth's reign, a lot of people truly cared about the Anglican church. A whole generation had grown up under it. Some did remain Catholic, but they had no real hope of influencing English society anymore. And some remained Puritan, but they could slowly work for transformation of the English church over the course of time. England still didn't have any steadfast allies abroad, but it also didn't have any strong enemies. France had collapsed into internal strife, and Spain had been defeated. Scotland wouldn't be an issue because her successor was the king of Scotland, so he would inherit both crowns. And he'd been raised a Calvinist, so there's no real question of religious upheaval when Elizabeth died. The peasants, who had found themselves in dire poverty after the dissolution of the monasteries, were still poor, but Elizabeth was trying to remedy that through her poor act. Power had more comprehensively been moved from the old nobility to the new gentry, who now exerted significant influence in government, too. In fact, while the central government was poor and Elizabeth had managed to ward off a financial crisis only by being extraordinarily frugal, local government was thriving. Its wealth was increasing and a huge percent of the country had started to take local turns in office. That actually brings me to something that I haven't mentioned much, and that's the growth of Parliament under Elizabeth I. The House of Commons had been Henry's closest ally during the Reformation, and Elizabeth truly continued that. By the end of her reign, they had even successfully turned against her on the issue of selling monopolies, which was one of the Crown's few revenue streams. One of her last public appearances was in front of the Commons, where she gave a speech which has been printed in pamphlets ever since, every time the English people had needed a morale boost. It was called the Golden Speech. 
The issue of an heir only briefly reared its head when a faction of her court led by the Earl of Essex tried to use an Irish uprising to set up a way to control her successor, but for the most part it disappeared without an issue. The Renaissance was in full swing, and England was secure in its stability and confident in its abilities. The subject of colonization had first emerged under Elizabeth, with people like Hawkins, Drake, and Frobisher dedicated to the idea of planting new world settlements. They saw in the new world both a chance for England to expand economically and for its individual people to find the opportunities they didn't have in England. With so much land being taken up by pasture, England had too many people, too little land, and too few opportunities. The needy and unemployed could go to the new world, and once they had achieved financial stability, they'd be yet another market for English goods. Colonies could be a simple way to solve the remaining practical problems faced by the country. When Elizabeth died, her successor was her cousin, James, King of Scotland. He was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and had been raised by Presbyterians since she fled Scotland when he was a year old. Everyone had high hopes for James as king. First, there was a peaceful succession, which was a relief, and second, everyone could look at James and see evidence that he might implement the changes that they wanted to see. For Catholics, he was the son of Mary Stuart, and they hoped that he'd reduce the laws against them. Puritans saw that he was raised by strict Calvinists in Scotland and were so hopeful that they met him on his way to London with a petition signed by a thousand ministers asking to meet with him to discuss a series of reforms to make the Church of England conform to their idea of what it should be. On the whole, James was actually an extremely competent ruler. He was shrewd and he knew when to back down in discussions with his rivals. His reign ushered in a period of unparalleled political and social peace. Culture flourished under James, and he continued a lot of Elizabeth's policies, and obviously, colonization did finally begin under his rule. Some historians even argue that British values come from the Stuart era. James quickly ended the conflict with Spain and managed to keep the country out of the Thirty Years' War, which was engulfing the continent. He wasn't into violent religious persecution and was much happier to simply leave his subjects alone. James was also an ardent pacifist, having witnessed war during his youth in Scotland. He wanted to be the peacemaker of Europe, and he knew that he didn't have the money to involve England in a war anyway. Even when the Puritan-controlled House of Commons wanted to go to war to defend the Protestants in Bohemia, James refused, because while it may have been a popular move, it wasn't one he could win. Parliament wouldn't give him enough money to fight the war effectively, the action would empower Puritans, creating internal conflict, and there was no reason to think that he'd secure a military victory anyway. Whether or not people appreciated it at the time, James's pacifism was crucial to England's well-being. The fact that he was king of both Scotland and England also removed a foothold for any continental powers who decided to invade England. And James quickly concluded hostilities and renewed diplomatic relations with Spain, ending the last remaining conflict the country faced. Now, he did overstep his bounds in trying to appease Spain, though, and he executed Sir Walter Raleigh when Raleigh avenged the Spanish. He had already imprisoned Raleigh on the dubious charge of conspiring to depose him. And then he led him out of prison to go find the lost city of El Dorado in, mo in modern-day Guiana. When Raleigh's quest defended the Spanish governors of South America, James quickly renewed the original charge against Raleigh and beheaded 
one of England's favorite national figures. And that brings us to the issues that England faced with James as king. The problem with James was that while he didn't make a huge number of mistakes, the mistakes he did make turned the people against him personally. So while England did well under James, it wasn't long before he became one of the more disliked kings in all of English history. England never forgave him for Raleigh's execution, and in fact, his own son strongly opposed the move. It wasn't the only source of discontent with James's rule, though. To begin with, his behavior was downright embarrassing. He wasn't only extravagant, something which already didn't go over well after Elizabeth's intentional frugality. He was extravagant in an embarrassing way. He had grown up under strict Calvinist discipline in a relatively poor Scotland, and when he got to England, he found both his financial and his social constraints removed at the same time. There were many embarrassing tales from James's court, but nothing was more embarrassing than the fact that he surrounded himself with a number of handsome young men. Now, that's something that Elizabeth had also done, but you can imagine how different it looked when instead of a virgin queen, the person flaunting a gaggle of handsome young favorites was a gruff Scotsman with a limp and no manners whatsoever. To make matters worse, these men often behaved extremely poorly. One killed somebody with the help of his wife, and James didn't really punish him. He did distance himself, though. But the man's replacement in James's affections was easily one of the most and most justifiably hated men in all of English history, a man named George Villiers, who James named Duke of Buckingham. Shortly after this, James took Buckingham to Madrid to see about marrying Charles to the Spanish Infanta. And this made James a huge laughingstock among European royalty and a huge source of embarrassment at home. Many kings throughout history have been rumored to be gay, but James fueled these rumors with vigor, and they have persisted to this day, even though many academics don't actually believe that his interest in the men was sexual. Gay or not, a king who drooled while he ate, lectured people, and took a flamboyant young man to evaluate his son's prospective bride wasn't exactly the look that England wanted as a country. It was even worse that he behaved this way while talking about the crown's money issues. That may have been bad enough, but the real problem was that James was so ignorant of and hostile to English laws and customs. He sold noble titles to anyone who would give him £10,000, which was certainly a smart way to raise money for the crown, but many people found it utterly disgusting and inappropriate. He wasn't totally sold on the idea of trial by jury, and in his first weeks on the throne, he ordered a thief who was caught red-handed to be hanged without a trial. Worst of all, James hated the Parliament. The new English gentry, who had, over the course of the Tudor reign, come to control the country financially, saw Parliament as their political voice. They now faced a king who was extraordinarily hostile to Parliament and who voiced his disapproval at every possible opportunity. The House of Commons, he said, is a body without a head. The members give their opinions in a disorderly manner. At their meetings, nothing is heard but cries, shouts, and confusion. I'm surprised that my ancestors should ever have permitted such an institution to come into existence. I am a stranger, and I found it here when I arrived, and I am obliged to put up with what I cannot get rid of. Like I said, he knew when to back down to prevent a big fight, but he truly, deeply disliked them, and they truly deeply disliked him. 
he tried to revert to the medieval prerogative rights of taxation and avoid having to to rely on Parliament, but he couldn't. The only concession that he got was the ability to impose customs duties. Economically, in some ways, England was thriving, with the new gentry continuing to dramatically increase in wealth. European inflation was hitting England hard, though, and a lot of the poorer people found that their wages were only doubling, while the cost of living increased sixfold. There were people who didn't fit in with the Tudor economy between the new industry that was emerging and the old medieval guilds, between a hardened framework of social organization and the aftermath of the enclosures. James also managed to disappoint both the Catholics and the Puritans who had had so much hope when he took the throne. James was neither a Catholic nor a Calvinist, and in fact the one English institution that he really liked was Elizabeth's Anglican Church. It was the least Protestant and most tolerant and most diverse of all the Reformed churches, and its big tent policy was extremely pragmatic for a society that had undergone so much social turmoil connected to religion. His upbringing had been extremely Calvinist, and he'd hated it. He'd also articulated something that Elizabeth had seen, which was that the bishops of England were necessary to maintaining both political and religious stability. At a point in history when extreme Calvinists and extreme Catholics were essentially playing a violent tug of war for every country in Europe, England's bishops could hold the country steady. Church and government needed each other to maintain peace for both. On a less practical note, James also enjoyed the intellectual appeal of the Anglican Church. He himself published numerous tracts and treatises on a variety of subjects, and as much as he enjoyed giving a good lecture, he also enjoyed having a good debate. And in the spirit of having a good debate, James accepted the Puritan invitation for a meeting and brought himself, his Elizabethan bishops, and some of the more moderate Puritan leadership together for a conference at Hampden Court. Now, we've mentioned the Puritans quite a bit at this point without really delving into who they were, so it's worthwhile to do that now. The Puritans wanted to make the Church of England Calvinist. There were people in England who wanted to establish their own Calvinist churches, and we'll discuss them later, but Puritans were a very specific group of people who wanted to change the church from within. They didn't believe in a religious hierarchy, and in many cases, they didn't believe in a social hierarchy either. They tended to be from the southeast of England, and they were overwhelmingly of the new gentry class that had emerged after the dissolution of the monasteries. I won't get into what they believed in terms of religion exactly, but policy-wise, they wanted a variety of reforms. They wanted to recognize the Sabbath, though this in itself could mean different things to different people. They wanted to improve the clergy, eliminate infant baptism, get rid of Christmas, and eliminate all tradition associated with the Catholic Church, including hymns, priest weddings, and wedding rings. They also didn't like the bishops. Like I said, they were democratic in theory and organization, and they didn't believe in the established church hierarchy. This belief had a religious component, but it's also something that was rooted in the class structure of the time. The bishops were almost all born into the nobility class, that fading class of families who had controlled so much until Henry's reign. Puritans were the up-and-coming merchants and industrial class, the new gentry. They were taking control of England politically and to a large degree socially. 
bishops were one of the few remaining places that the old nobility still exercised authority. It's also not a coincidence that the people who profited from the dissolution of the monasteries now decried the bishops as heretical. It wasn't all raw turnips and spike chairs. It was politics. The thing is, at this point in history, religion wasn't all about religion. It was intertwined into the social framework enough that political, economic, and class issues frequently played out through the church, or at least with Bible-based arguments. There were two separate concepts which are frequently confused. Christianity was the religion, and the term for what we now call Western civilization was Christendom, because its two defining features were the fact that it was comprised of a group of savage peoples who had been civilized by the Romans, and second, the fact that it had the Roman-introduced civilized religion of Christianity. People could have strong secular opinions about the way Christendom should go, things like social status, what wars to get involved in, economics, etc., without being strongly Christian in the way we think of today. They could also be deeply religious without particularly caring about how Christendom developed. The point is, it's important to understand the different sects of Christianity at the time, both in their religious and doctrinal differences and in their secular and political differences. Don't assume that just because someone called themselves godly, which was the term Puritans used for themselves, that they were really dedicated to Jesus Christ. Don't assume that because someone was Anglican that they were apathetic about God and just took a simple middle ground. Christianity is personal. Christendom is civilizational. Both used a lot of the same terminology. The gentry were Puritan, in part, I'm sure, because of genuine religious conviction, but also in part because they wanted to see Christendom move in a direction that favored them. The same goes for other sects. At the conference, James actually did agree with some of the Puritans' proposed reforms, like the improvement of the prayer book, increasing Sabbath observance, improving the clergy, and most famously, the need for a common Bible translation. It was at this conference that the idea for the King James Bible was born, and within two years, it became the most important book in English history. It was written without theological or ecclesiastical bias by six committees comprising 50 scholars who each had to approve all portions of the translation. When published, copies could be bought for five shillings. They spread far and wide through the English-speaking world, and they eliminated the need for a new translation for almost 300 years. On the whole, though, James was overtly hostile to the Puritans at the conference, and he obviously sided with the bishops. He accused the Puritans of trying to impose a Scottish presbytery, and it was there that he first uttered his famous phrase, no bishop, no king. He said that he would push them out of England if he could, and to that end, he began to impose petty restrictions and spying to obstruct Puritan organization in worship throughout England. This drove one group of Puritans to Leiden, at least temporarily. Things didn't go too much better with the Catholics. Like the Puritans, Catholics had hoped that James would be sympathetic to their cause. Like the Puritans, they were associated with a specific class, though instead of the new gentry, by this time Catholics were overwhelmingly members of the old nobility. James's mother had been their greatest hope in the last generation, so when James came to the throne, they did two things. The first was that a few prominent Catholics asked James for assurance that he would roll back the laws persecuting them, and he said that he would. 
The second was that they had petitioned the Pope to allow them to give their secular allegiance to the king. James had never been excommunicated, and he had said that he would allow them to practice Catholicism. If the Pope would just allow them to do this, they hoped they'd be able to live and worship peacefully. Unfortunately, the Pope was a member of the Jesuit Counter-Reformation, intent on stamping out and opposing Protestantism wherever he could. So he refused to allow them to give secular allegiance to a heretical sovereign. And furthermore, he began to publish volumes attacking James's right to the throne. This forced James to act, and Catholics again found themselves fined for refusing to attend Anglican services, watching their priests be banished, and watching their rights be taken away. Hope turned to despair, and a small group of Catholics hatched a plot to collapse the current government and establish a Catholic regime with Spanish help. They would blow up the increasingly Puritan parliament along with the king and start fresh. This was, of course, a gunpowder plot, and it did, of course, fail. James didn't use the plot as an excuse to institute general violence against Catholics, though. He didn't want to spill blood, and he tried to differentiate between simple Catholics who felt a natural duty to their sovereign and the ones who wanted to topple the government. So the Catholics accepted their legal restrictions, took the oath of allegiance, participated in James's required celebration as the failure of the plot, went back to quietly hiding like they'd done during Elizabeth's reign, and began to tacitly accept the government. So, the last episode discussed how English society fractured in the first place. This episode has explored the implications of those fractures under the two monarchs who held that together that fragmented society. These same divisions ultimately led to the English Civil War under James's son Charles, and they also characterized American colonization, which was first explored under Elizabeth and James. James's peace with Spain allowed English attention to venture abroad again. The Elizabethan texts advocating colonization were revived and a second wave of explorers arose. People left England for many reasons, which follow from what we've just discussed. England was unique among European powers in that it saw colonies as a good way to alleviate problems at home, not simply as a government venture to increase the crown's wealth. People stifled by the new English economy could find economic opportunity abroad. Younger sons who couldn't find land to build up their estates could find land. James himself saw the opportunity for trade with lively colonies as a way to increase customs revenue, which would help fund the crown. Merchants and gentry saw opportunity for investment and trade where there weren't many in Europe. The nobility saw a place where it could set up colonies the way that English society had been when they were in charge. Religious minorities saw places where they could either escape persecution or establish their own religious order. Next episode, we'll take a quick look at what happened to Sir Walter Raleigh's Roanoke colony, and after that we'll get into the real details of early American history by discussing the first permanent colony at Jamestown. Thanks for listening! If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate if you'd rate and subscribe to the show. And you can also visit my website at AmericanHistoryPodcast.net or connect with me on social media. 